Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Thank you, thank you, thank you for worshiping with us. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you do not have a Bible, we would like to give you one. Back here in the middle section, we've got uh, a row of Bibles. Please grab one and take one. Um, that's our gift to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been in a, a short series that we're just calling the body of Christ. And we'll be in 1 Corinthians 13 today, 1 Corinthians 14 next week. And then this series will come to an end. But we wanted to take a little bit of time after we focused on what do we believe as a church. We walked through the Apostles' Creed. Now to look at these three chapters where Paul is inviting us to live as the body of Christ. Okay, what do we believe, but how do we live together? And there's so much that could be said from these three chapters, but also all over the scriptures about how we live together as the people of God. And the theme has been the body of Christ. Paul uses this phrase to describe the way the church and each individual member plays a unique and irreplaceable part in how God puts the body together just as he wills to do what he desires it to do. Now at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, but desire the greater gifts and I will show you an even better way. And then he begins our text for this morning, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. God, what a beautiful chapter. A chapter that challenges us, and a chapter that casts a very compelling vision of what you can do in us and through us. Open our eyes and open our hearts to receive this truth, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would make it a reality in our lives and in our church community. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
I think the main idea from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that the main marker of the church is love. Some of us are surprised that 1 Corinthians 13 does not come in the context of marriage. Because maybe that's the only context we've ever heard this chapter read. Now, I don't know. uh, It wasn't read at our wedding. It might have been read at yours. Maybe a section of it was read at yours. But it is quite interesting that so much of 1 Corinthians 13 seems to not apply at all to marriage. (laughs) If we talk about prophecy, if we talk about tongues, if we talk about the gift of knowledge, if we talk about uh, the things that he talks about there at the end when the perfect comes and the partial passes away. But this middle section has been picked up and championed as a vision for love, and rightly so. So I, I certainly think it applies, at least those middle verses do, to the way we ought to love one another in marriage. But what's fascinating is to find the context of 1 Corinthians 13 in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is encouraging the church. A church that we learned last week has a problem with pride and hierarchies, ranking one another and the importance of certain parts of the body and certain spiritual gifts over and above other people, other parts, other gifts. And he ends chapter 12 saying spiritual gifts are good, they're equal, they come from the same spirit, and here's an even better way to live. Love. What he's saying is the chief marker, the main mark of a healthy church is love. So this morning we're gonna look at the three sections of 1 Corinthians 13, and we're gonna ask three questions that I think Paul is asking. The first section is this. What about all that I'm capable of? We're gonna look at verses one through three and we're gonna see what Paul says about this question. What about all that I'm capable of? Paul, you want to tell me to love, but what about all that I can do? What about all that I'm good at? That's the questions that he asks. If I, and he's very selfless. He puts himself there, the first person. If I speak in certain kinds of tongues, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand mysteries, knowledge, and have all this faith, if I give away everything, but if you do all those things and you don't have love, what does he say? I am nothing. I gain nothing. Paul takes these gifts that the Corinthian church thought was superior. He takes these gifts that they thought made them better than others, and he kind of reverses everything and says, yeah, but if you do those things without love, you're nothing. These gifts were the foundation of their pride. And his assessment is simple. If all of these gifts exist without love, it means this, a lack of love is also a lack of true spiritual significance. Spiritual gifts being put into practice in a spiritual community without love is meaningless. It's meaningless. So for all the pride they might have had in their spiritual gifts, if they didn't have love, Paul says they didn't have anything. We've got to pause for just a second and try to let that sink in because they put so much stock in their gifts, so much stock in their abilities. This is why Paul spends so much time writing about this to this church and almost no time writing about it in most of his letters because this church had a unique challenge with overemphasizing some of these spiritual gifts. So Paul's saying, you wanna take pride in these things? You need to understand these things without love are meaningless. And I was thinking this week, I I don't know much about baking. I'm not a good baker. 
We've tried to make a loaf of sourdough one time, and it went okay, actually. We've tried to make other kinds of bread. I have dreams of making homemade cinnamon rolls one day. That sounds delicious. Uh, but a friend of mine, uh, Nick, is a, is a great baker. He like, grind, he, like, mills his own flour on his counter, and, I mean, he's, like, magnificent at this. And one time I was preaching a couple of years ago, they used to come to this church, and I said something about when you throw in an ingredient, you have no idea what it does, and you throw in baking powder. And he comes up to me afterwards, he's like, hey, that's actually really important. He explains to me the importance of baking powder or baking soda or yeast. He's like, it's a leavening agent. It makes it rise. And I couldn't help but think and hear Nick telling me that as I'm reading 1 Corinthians 13, what if I'm baking a loaf of bread and I leave out any sort of leaven? Like, you don't put it in that you make pancakes and you don't put in the baking soda or the baking powder. You're making uh, sourdough bread and you just say, I'm gonna skip the starter because my starter's not ready and I'm just gonna put everything else in there and we're gonna see what comes out. And friends, the, the reality is you won't have a loaf of bread. It's a small ingredient and you're not meant to put a ton of it in there, but if it's not included, it compromises the integrity of the entire baking project. You have no bread at all. And that is essentially what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. Look, outwardly, you see spiritual gifts. You hear people prophesy. You hear tongues. You hear knowledge and faith. And yes, that's wonderful. But if you're missing the ingredient of love that's motivating those gifts, then you're missing everything. And what you have is not a church at all. I think part of what we're meant to take from this first section is we're meant to ask ourselves what outward works. What activities, what abilities, gifts, or strengths do I depend on to prove my worth in the body of Christ? What outward activities do I depend on to prove my value to others? What things would I point to on a sort of spiritual resume to say, but, but look at what good I am to this body. We're having a members meeting at the end of the service. There are many churches for which members meetings are divisive and ugly and argumentative and people want to come and say, do you know why my vote should matter more than yours? Because my grandparents built this church and because I've been giving this much here for this long and I've led this ministry here for all these years and my husband was a deacon and my mother taught Sunday school and they come with these things, they look at all that I've done for the church and you're gonna ignore me when I have this comment here and, and Paul would gently but I think firmly say, if all that we do in the body is not motivated by love, it's nothing. If you've done all those things for the church so that you could have a resume to say, haven't I proved my worth and value and belonging here? Paul would say, that's not the point. What are those things that we do that we think prove our worth in the body of Christ? That prove our value, that prove that we belong, that prove that we have a place because we do live in a world where your belonging in a community must be proved and maintained. And Paul, in this very beginning, is challenging that. Hey, all the things that you do that you think make you belong, there's another way. So he moves on to verses four through seven. And I think these verses do two things. First of all, they show the Corinthian church what they're missing. He's giving them this list of the attributes and qualities of love, and he's showing them almost like a self-examination. Uh, love is patient. What do you think? You know, uh, 
a healthy person can run a mile in under 10 minutes. And he just waits for you to do the math and go, I can't do that. Love is kind. And he waits a minute for you to do the math in your head. He's giving them this almost to say, where do you fit? The other thing he's doing is he's giving them a vision for what God can do in them. He's not just giving them something that's unattainable. He's trying to give it to them to say, do you see this in your life? Because the way you're talking about spiritual gifts, I think you're missing the point of love. But if you let God have his way in your heart and among you in your fellowship, this is what it will look like. Catch a vision for this. This is most simply a list. And sometimes lists can be a little difficult in scripture. What do I do? Do I need to go take a deep dive into every single one of these words that Paul uses here? I think if we take a step back and we look at all these things for what they are, we will see one major theme throughout all of them, and it's selflessness. Selflessness and humility are the antidote to much of what's wrong with the Corinthian church. Selflessness and humility are the key to living out almost all of this list in verses four through seven. Think about this with me. Uh, love does not envy. Well, speaking of jealousy, it makes sense from the Corinthian church because they wanted power and authority and status. It's thinking that you might deserve something other than what you have. Love is not boastful. It's praising yourself, closely related to being arrogant, which is the next word. The, the difference between boasting and arrogance might simply be whether it's outward or inward. Love is not rude. It's not dishonoring others, being indecent towards others. It's the opposite of rude is uh, like good order. Propriety shows up in scripture in some ways. Love's not self-seeking. It's pretty straightforward, right? It's not irritable, like annoyed or bothered at others. It's not keeping a record of wrong, so it must be gracious and forgiving and merciful. Not bitter or vengeful, not repaying others, but not keeping a record of wrongs. It finds no joy in unrighteousness but it rejoices in the truth. Simple and surface level affirmation, Paul says, is not love. Regardless of what our current culture might say, love rejoices in objective, external truth. Preston Sprinkle says that clarity is an act of love, not simply affirmation. So Paul gives this list that I think a theme that runs throughout it is selflessness. Now, selfishness says, I'm looking for what's best regardless of what it might cost you. Selflessness says, I'm willing to do what's best for you regardless of what it might cost me. Do you understand where the cost is put? Selfishness says, it might cost you something, but this is best for me. So I don't care if it costs you something. But selflessness says, you know what? This might cost me something but it is for your best. Our world prizes self-expression, self-actualization, where we name who we are, proclaim who we are, live out who we are. We don't want to deny ourselves at all, but give full freedom of expression to anything that you feel or desire or want. Our world prizes that, cheers that on, and elevates that. Jesus, though, invites us to self-denial. So if you want surefire proof that you've not been freed by the gospel, then let's look at whether or not you're selfless. The only way to become selfless is to realize that there's nothing greater I can do for myself 
than what Jesus has already done for me. Let me say that again. The only way to become selfless is to realize there's nothing greater I can do for myself. That's the key of selfishness. I've got to do something great for myself. It is a freedom to realize no matter what I do for myself, it is not even close to as great as what Christ has already done for me. That's the way to selflessness. And here's what Jesus has done. Romans chapter five, verse eight. God proves his own love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. The single most selfless act in human history. The righteous for the unrighteous. The pure for the unclean. The sinless for the sinful. Or Hebrews 12, 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What did Jesus do that was so selfless? He endured the cross, despised the shame of the cross. He went through the shame, the pain, the horror, the death on a cross, bearing the full weight of God's wrath on our behalf. He took on what he did not deserve. That, friends, is selflessness. And so the only way that I can live out selfless love that Paul casts a vision for in 1 Corinthians 13, verses four to seven, is if I first receive the selfless love of Christ. I don't have to prove my loveliness with outward works and abilities and usefulness. Because Romans 5, 8 tells me, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me and showed his love for me. So in a world where everyone must prove their worth and their value to a community, we can invite people into a community where their value is not based on their works. Do we understand how countercultural that is? Everywhere you belong outside of God's community, your belonging will be measured you will have to prove over and again that you belong in those places and those spaces. And that is tiring, friends, to constantly have to prove that you belong by being up on the right issues, by condemning the right things, by making statements about certain things, dressing the right way, making the right amounts of money, performing the right way at work, informally performing the right way at work by enjoying the, the same things that the right people do and trying to get on the good side of people that can give you promotions which means loving what they love and hating what they hate, not just during office hours, but even outside of that. Helping your kids to belong and be successful in sports and academia. Constantly trying to prove that we have a place in this world. And then we find ourselves face-to-face -face with a community where Jesus says, your belonging here does not need to be proved. I'm not waiting on you to show me your value to this community because the true mark of this community is not all that you bring to the table with your outward works. It's an inner disposition of love that can only come from those who have first received the love of Christ. So Paul is casting a vision here saying, this is what love is like, it is selfless. And the only way that can be produced in you is if you first receive the selfless love of Jesus. These last few verses, Paul answers the question, what's the value of love? What's the value of love? He transitions to this final section with a comparison. He says in verse eight, love never ends. But 
As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. All the things, dear church in Corinth, that you pride yourself in is temporary. All the things that you're boasting in that you think give you status, they're not going to last forever. And then he explains why in verse nine when he starts the sentence with four. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, perfect is that word we talked about 18 months ago in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. It means mature, whole, fully grown, complete, finished. What he's saying now is spiritual gifts happen now in part because we only see and understand in part. But here's what there is to grasp for us about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are signs that point to a greater and fuller reality when one day we will not need spiritual gifts because we will live in the presence of the source of spiritual gifts forever. Spiritual gifts are signs pointing to a greater reality. I mean, you realize how important this is for us. Right now, we need spiritual gifts because we don't have the fullness of knowledge of God. And even when we are growing in knowledge, it seems like every piece of knowledge we learn, it pushes out some old piece that we need to go relearn. We don't have the fullness of a word from God yet. We have the fully sufficient scripture of which we are submitting to its beautiful authority. But we don't know this perfectly. We don't apply it perfectly. And there are so many things that if you read this word well, you'll end up with more questions than answers a lot of times. So Paul is saying all these things you pride yourself in, they're only partial. And they're meant to make us want and desire that time when everything's perfect and complete and whole. This was a major blow to their pride because all that they prided themselves in, Paul says, this is in part, this is temporary. And then he goes on to two analogies. Verse 11 is an analogy using, again, he puts himself in the first person here, his own childishness, growing into adulthood. That's exactly what the word perfect portrays there, fully grown. So when all things are fully grown and mature, just like when a fully grown adult stops doing the things that a partially grown child does, the way they think, the way they talk, the way they reason, are put aside. Now that word for put aside is the same exact word that's used above when it says prophecies will come to an end. Paul's using an analogy to say just like kids grow up, one day we will go from in part to perfect. And the things that we do as a child will be put aside and we'll embrace a better way of living a more full and complete and mature way. And then he uses another analogy, which is a mirror. For now, before all things are perfect or mature or complete, we see like a reflection in a mirror, which isn't the real thing. As much as it might resemble the real thing, it's not. You're still looking at a mirror. But when things are perfect or mature or complete, we will see face to face. One commentator notes that Paul climaxes this passage by saying that love is not only greater than every gift, but it's also greater than every virtue. He says at the end, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So love is greater than every spiritual gift we could desire, every spiritual gift God has given to the church, because it's the character from which spiritual gifts become useful to the church. But it's also greater than every virtue. 
And Paul often in his letters will lump these three things together, faith, hope, and love. It was common to do that for him. And he says, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because that is the only one that is rooted in the character of God. Because God is love. So he's giving us this vision about why is love so valuable? And he says, because it is eternal. Because it will never end. These spiritual gifts, we will lay them aside when we move into the perfect, when God makes all things new and we live in his new creation forever, we're gonna put these spiritual gifts aside. I, I was, I don't remember who it was I was talking to in the last couple months and they were like, I don't know how this job that I have is ever gonna translate to the new creation. I said, you think you feel useless? I'm a pastor. You're gonna be with Jesus. I'm gonna have nothing to do. Because a lot of this stuff's going to be laid aside. We're going to be with him. We're going to see him face to face. But love will continue on. You say, how? How will love continue on? Listen to this. In the life to come, it will be a delight to love and not a challenge. Just as it will no longer be a challenge to trust God or to have hope. Then... Our love will not be a love of people despite their shortcomings or despite our own shortcomings. It will no longer be a love that goes against the grain, but one that delights in loving all those who coexist in the wonderful presence of the God who first loved us and who has fully transformed all that remains into that which is eminently lovable. All love in this life, except for our love for God, is loving things that are not perfectly lovable. Right now we love, as this commentator uh, said, we love against the grain. We love despite our own shortcomings and we love despite the shortcomings of others. But that love will one day be transformed into not love against the grain, not love despite shortcomings, but love with its object of those things that are perfectly lovable, that have been transformed into perfect glory. And our love will be more recognizing the loveliness of everything than it will be trying to see through the brokenness and watch the potential of it. We will be recognizing all that God has done to transform everything and make everything new, and our love will be a natural response to it. So Paul has shown from the beginning to the end of this short chapter on love, he's shown that it's, there's something more important than what we do to belong to a community. We don't have to prove our worth. But the only way to live a selfless love is if we first receive the selfless love of Christ and then we can embrace a life of love which is really eternal. We're living the eternal reality right now when we're able to receive the love of Christ and give that love to others. Paul encourages the church in Corinth and us today to root our lives in love and not in outward gifts, not in outward strengths or abilities, but to root our lives in love. The community of Jesus, the church, is not a place where we belong based on our usefulness. It's a place where we belong because of the love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we are invited to live out that love towards one another. Let's pray.